think you could do that. Go to the southern tip of New Zealand with 20 bucks and make it to the northern tip. <laughs> Mark, I think you could make it. Somehow or another, <laughs> I'd see your smiling face at that port of call. <laughs> By the way, how many of you noticed that French fries are around the world? Did you see, I, I saw that big plate of French fries and thought, it's everywhere. You know, <laughs> the fattening of the world, that's our gift. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, this is, our church is part of the Foursquare organization of churches. And the thing that, that drew me initially and keeps, keeps me coming back and, and draws me still is its emphasis on reaching out. And, and it's not, I don't want to, it's not simply an organization that reaches out merely with uh, open air preaching or, or things of that nature. Uh, Foursquare has now recently begun to develop orphanages, schools, uh, meeting some incredible, awesome needs around the world. And, I, you know, I don't know, I guess I'm in some ways proud to say this, that, you know, in the United States, there's a little less than, than 2,000 Foursquare churches. But you go outside of the United States, and there's nearly 100,000, uh, you know, documented and undocumented works that are going on. And that's partly because the value has been a very missionary value. And so as we head into this, Christmas season, uh, we're going to be heating that up uh, in our in our church and developing that. We've already been a part of giving to uh, the Warm Blankets International. There's a a, a school orphanage slash orphanage in Cambodia that we have been supporting. So if you're interested in supporting that, please let us know. But uh, as Katie and Brian mentioned, we're taking it up a scale where rather than just sending the money. Uh, we're going to now plan some trips where we can go. And uh, I'll tell you, it, it'll revolutionize uh, your Christianity to go into another country and represent Christ there. And so be praying about it, uh, be thinking about it, maybe save a little here and there. Uh, and we'll, we'll always try to keep the trip costs down as low as we can. But I think they're going to be really, really wonderful addition uh, to the life of our church. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning, God. Thank you so much for the, for the blessings you have bestowed upon us, Lord. Just thinking over this last Thanksgiving, God, that, that we, we do have much to be thankful for. And uh, I pray that we would humble ourselves this season and see your hand working in our lives and that we would be grateful for that. God, as we come into this Christmas season now, celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ, help us to celebrate this Christmas in a meaningful way, not simply in parties and presents, and, but that, God, it would be a meaningful celebration of your coming. Open the word now to our ears and our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who have been around a while, we've been going through the book of Matthew, uh, kind of not verse by verse, but chunk by chunk, and I deliberately started in Matthew 3 last fall so that we could come back to Matthew 1 at Christmas. My hope and goal is that we finish the book of Matthew before next Christmas. However, uh, in case we don't do that, we're going to get to that now, and so beginning right in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, if you brought your Bibles along, which I sure hope you did, 
we're going to go through a long list of names that are probably going to be very unfamiliar to many of you, but I'll try to break it down and show you just what Matthew is doing here and how he is strategically making a bold, bold statement by listing Jesus' ancestry. So if you don't have a Bible, you might want to follow along because I'm going to ask if you know a few of these names. It is okay if you don't know any of these names. But a couple of them might be familiar to you. So let's go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll read for you this text. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The actual translation of that, by the way, is this is the genesis of Jesus the Christ. But uh, we'll, we'll roughly the same thing. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, for you and I, that statement, ah, that, yeah, that just kind of comes with Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, all that Jewish stuff. But what you need to understand is in the first century, when this letter is picked up and read by a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl, they would have looked at that and they would have known exactly what Matthew was attempting to say. Jesus is that promised Messiah, prophet, king from long ago who's come. There would have been no doubt what Matthew was trying to say. And then he goes through a verification method by giving his ancestry. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. How many of you, Abraham is a recognizable name, most of you probably. Isaac is a recognizable name, most of you probably. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob, a pretty recognizable name. Jacob is the father of Judah. That's why we call them Jews, because they are the descendants of Judah. And so, you know, Judah, pretty recognizable name. Then we go into a bunch of unrecognizable names, really. Perez and Zerah, uh, who, whose mother was Tamar. We'll get to that in a moment, why Matthew includes women. Very odd. Nothing against you, ladies. But in Old Testament genealogies, your genetic contribution was not factored into the ancestry. It always followed through the man. Matthew is pulling some of these women out, and it would have been very odd in the first century to look at that and say, what's this woman doing in here? Perez is the father of Hezron, someone unknown in the Bible, but Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of um, um, whatever his name is, uh, Amimnadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz might be a little familiar. Who's, whose husband was Boaz? Kind of, oh, Walt's well, right there. <laughs> if you put them all together. Um, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. All right, so we're a little bit known at the end. Now, in the middle here, for anyone who's ever read the Old Testament, we get a lot of known names. Uh, David and Solomon, Solomon and Rehoboam, Rehoboam and Abijah. Uh, you get to some really bad kings here. These are the kings of Israel, Abijah and Asa. 
Asa and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good one. Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. Jehoram and, and Uzziah. Uzziah was, a, he was, he was the Rambo of the group. Uzziah and Jotham. Jotham and Ahaz. Ahaz. Hezekiah. How many of you have ever read the book of Hezekiah? Thank you. <laughs> there is no Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was a bad dude, although he got better at the end. Manasseh and Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And then Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile. They're actually missing one more, Zedekiah there, but we'll, we'll let it slide. So in the middle, you know, we, we, we have a bunch of more familiar names. Then from 12 to 16, you probably aren't going to recognize not one single name because the Israelites are now exiled. They have been conquered. They have been deported. They're just rotting over in Persia, Babylon, which would become Persia. And you really get a list of names that, that are not going to be very familiar until you get to who? Joseph. And, and Joseph being the husband of Mary. And, you know, Matthew says there's 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. When Jews did this, it's a, it's a triad. You might not see it. But if you, were to, if you were to dissect it and diagram it, you have a triad. You have the Abraham to David. You have the David to, excuse me, <laughs> David to the exile. And then you have the exile to Joseph. When Jews did that, what they were highlighting was the middle. Does that make sense? You're looking at something and you got something to the right or something to the right. Is this your right or your left? It's your left, isn't it? Something to the left and something to the right. But right in the middle would have been the huge scriptural bullseye that we were supposed to look at. And right in the middle is the list of what? The kings, right? Matthew is highlighting Jesus' royal blood. In the 17th century, England had an interesting thing happen. It had a king named Charles I. He wasn't the greatest king, uh, but in some senses he wasn't the worst either. But a Puritan, uh, a born-again Christian by the name of, name of Oliver Cromwell, led a revolution and ousted the king of England. How many of you are tracking with me? You know, something about that name rings a bell, Oliver Cromwell. Well, Oliver Cromwell sets up a, a, a sort of a, a representative government to replace the British monarchy. But here's the problem. When Cromwell is on his way out, who does he name as his successor? His son. What does that sound like? Sounds like a monarchy, doesn't it? And so he, while being popular for overthrowing an unpopular king, Charles I, when he names his son, who is far weaker of a leader than he is, what do the British do? They eventually oust his son and bring back the monarchy. And part of the point of this is this. No matter what Cromwell did, he did not have the credentials to be royalty. He was not a member of the Stuart family of kings. And therefore, he had no rightful 
in their laws of their time, no rightful way to rule. While they enjoyed the overthrow, they began to see what was happening. It was an overthrow, but a, a new monarchy was beginning to rise when he appoints his son as successor. Now, that wasn't Cromwell's intention, but that's what the Britons saw. And they came and they said, you are not of royal pedigree. You have no right to rule. And by 1660, I believe, they bring back the British monarchy. This is part of what Matthew is doing with this genealogy. He is making a bold statement to say this, Jesus Christ has the right to rule. He's a Jewish king. And he'll expand that further. I'm going to take you there. If you want to go to your discussion guide and looking at that first point, here is part of what Matthew is doing. Matthew is weaving in a whole bunch of Old Testament concepts and he is basically applying them and painting them over Jesus as the coming Christ, as the coming King, as the coming Messiah. Point number one, Jesus is that blessing of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, and your offspring will be a blessing to all of the nations. Jesus is that blessing. He is the chosen of Isaac. Why, what was the difference between Isaac and Ishmael and anybody else that would have come? Because Isaac was the chosen one. He had that chosen line through which Jesus comes from. He is part of the family of Jacob. Jacob's family and those 12 tribes were anointed. But the one son in that family was prophesied in Genesis chapter 50 to have the scepter, the rule of the family, and that was going to be Judah. And Jacob says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Why is Perez so important? Perez and Zerah were twins. Zerah was coming out of the birth canal first. For some reason, he, graphically, I'm sorry, please don't dwell on this, but he goes back in and Perez comes out first. What is the big deal about that? The right of succession generally went to the what? The firstborn. He is that firstborn. He is the redeemer of Boaz. Ruth Ruth is, 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 is married rightfully into a Jewish family. All of the husbands have died. She has nobody to redeem her family line. And Boaz comes in and says, you, your family will not fade into oblivion. I marry you. I accept you. I redeem you. The prince and the Christ of King David. David is obviously an example of, of the rule of Christ as he expanded the Jewish kingdom and the wisdom of some. He is the fulfillment of a work that God had been doing through a specific family for multiple generations. And Matthew is showing that in a very obvious way to the Jews, but not so obvious to us. The second statement that Matthew is making is he's saying, Jesus is the rightful heir. What Oliver Cromwell could not claim, Jesus can. He is the rightful heir heir to the throne of Israel as Christ, as a son of Abraham, as a son of David, and as the firstborn son. Point three, through God's covenant promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 13, Jesus will be king of the world forever. 
God says something to David that is a game changer in 2 Samuel 7 there. He says, not only are you going to have a son on the throne that's going to rule forever, going to rule the whole world. Hundreds of years ago, God says through prophets to David, your son will rule forever and will rule the whole world. Now, if David was a betting man, he probably would have scratched his head and said, in order for this person to live forever, must be of God. In order to rule the whole world, must really be of God. Fourth point, the event that Israel had been waiting for. You have to remember, they were waiting for the coming of this Messiah. Wait, they're still waiting. Matthew says, here's the credentials. Everything that has been prophetically applied to his coming right here in this ancestry. Skip down to this new creative work is marked by two key implications. The first is that followers of Jesus have been adopted into God's family. And the second is that followers of Jesus will enjoy his eternal rule. Jesus is both human and divine. God is no longer separate from us, but he is of us, among us, and with us. And because he lives, we also will still live. To close this part, Matthew is making a bold, confident statement. This prophesied Jewish Messiah that would be the blessing to the world and the ruler over the world is verified. The royal pedigree is there. The verification is there. The credentials are there. The right to rule is there. Everything is there in Jesus. He was no accident. He's not just some human from history. He's not just plucked out of nowhere. It is specifically targeted through the generations, things that no one person could control, but God can. Those many centuries ago, he came in the man and person of Jesus Christ. Now, how, how does some of this apply to us? This is where we come back to the women because the women actually say a lot in this, in, in this little chunk of the Bible here. And the first thing I want to point to in the application points are, number one, extend your family beyond ethnic bloodlines. Uh, one of the things that is really neat, I've, I heard a few stories of this from people in our church on Thanksgiving. They invited someone over that wasn't a part of their family to enjoy Thanksgiving together because they, maybe they didn't have a, a, a family coming into town and didn't, didn't have that. So they were invited over. That is a very biblical Example to follow. When you look at Ruth in particular, Ruth should never have existed. Whoa. No, I'm serious. The charge to Israel when they invaded Canaan was to what? Leave no survivors. It was a thorough cleansing of the land. 
They failed to do that. And you've got these Ammonites and these Moabites on the other side of the river, and Ruth is one of them. She shouldn't even be alive. And yet she is Jesus' what, 32nd great-grandmother? We've got some, some foreign blood in the ancestry here. Because you see, God doesn't view the racial lines like we do. In fact, someone pointed out something very interesting. You know, there aren't different races. Humans are one race. The human race. It's not the Caucasian race or the Asian race. Humanity is one race. And of course, the covenants, when they include people like Ruth and Rahab and Tamar, they're not just Jewish covenants anymore. They're human covenants. They're a covenant with all of us. It's not just Jesus' family we see in Matthew 1. It's our family. It's your family. It's my family. Number two, find forgiveness for the stubborn, the difficult, and imperfect family members because you have been forgiven. I won't belabor this point, but this week I had someone ask me point blank to my face, why should I forgive this person in this situation? I have done nothing wrong. This person from day one in the relationship has just been this sided. I'm tired of forgiving. I'm tired of being walked on. I'm tired of always trying to have to take the high road. For once, I just want to let this person have it and say, we're done. Don't ever talk to me again or call me. And I was in a dangerous moment there. This person was so upset. If I said the wrong thing, I was really thinking I might get decked. So I'm kind of wincing my face as I say this. Because God has forgiven us. Because we have been forgiven. I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. That's how we forgive others. Number three, restore your family's honor. I saw, I, I had a wonderful friend up in Seattle who was Korean. And he said something one day that always stuck with me. He had, he had the opportunity to go to a, a technical school and get a degree and all this and and he, and he was so happy about it. And he said, man, I, I just love that I get to bring honor to my family. And I, I walked away and I kind of thought, that's an odd way to say it. I don't think I ever would have said that. I would have thought, it's a great way for me to make some money for myself. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know, being a, in the American mindset that I, I just have never, I'd never heard that I would bring honor to my family. I'm just saying, this is great to bring honor to my family. And I thought, you know what? That is a great mindset to have. That we would restore honor to our families. I think of Bathsheba. She's part of that genealogy. She's called the wife of Uriah. I really would love to tell Matthew, couldn't you just put her name in there? She has a name. And she was taken by David. They had an adulterous affair. She got pregnant. David had to kill off the husband. They lost the baby. Horrible, horrible set of circumstances. It's bringing huge dishonor to David's family. But from that point on, 
David's actions were bent to restore honor to his family. He ended well, even though he had a rough middle. Amen? Amen. And then finally, thank God for the gift of Jesus Christ that you have been free. Rahab was a Canaanite spy. Again, shouldn't have been there. Should have been wiped out. But the Jews made a deal with her. You don't tell on us when we come to conquer Jericho and the walls fall down and da 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 we'll spare you. Not only is Rahab spared, she marries. Obviously, leaving her old life of prostitution, she marries and becomes Jesus' 36th great-grandmother, something like that. I mean, you see that in Jesus' family line, they're far from perfect. Adultery, it's already in the family. Murder, it's already in the family. Lying and deceit, already in the family. Idolatry, that's in the family too. Am I excusing these for a moment? No. But I am trying to drive home the point. God used an imperfect family to bring a perfect Christ. And as we look at our families this Christmas, they may be imperfect. Mine is far from perfect. But thank God Christ is. And he frees us. He saves us. And he gives us the one thing, the one thing. I've been to about 15 deathbeds where people are dying. You want to know what the one thing they always want to talk to me about and ask me about? The one topic of discussion? I can give it to you in one word. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. They want to talk about forgiveness. Even people who have been the strongest, machoist Christians you've ever seen, when they're minutes from going to this world to the next. They want me to hold their hand and say, Pastor, look at me one more time and say, I'm forgiven in Jesus' name. You are. You are. You have nothing to fear. As far as the east is from the west, it's forgiven. Are you glad we got Christmas? Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you and I just want to pray right now for those of us, Jesus, that have those family members we're finding hard to forgive. God, that we would forgive because we have been forgiven. to look at Jesus' family line and to say, you used a far from perfect family to bring your perfect son into the world. So Jesus, help us to embrace each other freshly, to forgive each other freshly, to have tolerance and long-suffering for each other, and to choose you so that many years from now as we are lying in our deathbeds we would have that peace all is forgiven 
all is forgiven. If you've never done that before, I'd like to invite you to pray with me right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I make you my Lord and Savior, and I receive you into my heart. I receive your Holy Spirit into my heart as well. Guide me now. Show me how to live, love, and to be victorious in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Have a great, great morning. Uh, black, all the shopping craze is over, but still be careful out there. I saw blood on the Walmart floor, and I'm not kidding. So God bless you all. Have a great week. Next week, we'll talk about Emmanuel. What does it really mean that the God who is everywhere was the God who was here in a specific person, place, human being? God bless you all. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday, same time, same place.